Hello and welcome back. Thank you all so much for your positive feedback from the first podcast episode. Podcasting has been extremely humbling so far and I am really enjoying the challenge of trying to improve every episode. If you enjoy the show, please can you take a minute to subscribe and leave a review. It helps more than you think and it would be much appreciated. Now, today's guest is Mark Nichols. Mark is a property developer and investor who not long ago finished a 14-year career in the Royal Signals. Mark really opened up during this 75-minute conversation, and I was blown away by what he has been through and how low he got at one point in time. What is even more amazing is how he's managed to turn his life around and now runs a thriving property investment company. You can expect to hear what Mark's role was in the Royal Signals, how he discovered the traditional education route wasn't for him, how moving away from home as a young adult impacted him, how being away from home affects relationships, does the army do enough for their troops' mental health, what led to Mark leaving the army, why Mark turned to alcohol, which coincided with him trying to take his own life, how psychedelics have been very helpful for the treatment of his depression, how finding purpose through property development has had a positive effect on his outlook of life, how raising finance has allowed him to scale his portfolio, why networking is so important, what he thinks of the property education industry, and so much more. So that's all from me for now. Get comfy, settle in, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. What does reaching your full potential mean to you? So as you go through life, you sort of... Uh... You hit different stages in your life. And although property was always a strategy for me ever since I was maybe 18, I knew that I'd have a portfolio of properties um, that was a necessity. But as uh, I sort of hit 30, I realized that I need to be focusing a lot more on my business and a lot less on other parts of my life. Um, and as you grow older, I think what, you put your energy into probably shifts. I used to put a lot of energy into sport and being as good as I could at that. My military career being as good as I could at that. So what you put your energy into will come to fruition, I guess is what I'm saying. What is my full potential? I think the full potential of any human is limitless. It's you powered by your thoughts really. So what you think and believe you can achieve, um, so what is my full potential? Don't know. Maybe make Morecambe great again. Yes. For anyone that doesn't know where Morecambe <laughs> is, it's right up there in the north, isn't it? Yeah. Beautiful place, sunny place, but, you know, as northern as we get. What was Mark like when he was growing up? <laughs> uh, I suppose from her perspective, she would say smiley. I think I still am smiley. But, uh I think it's a very good attribute of myself that I like. I don't know. I draw people in by smiling. I guess now I probably know from a psychological perspective what it what it does to to other people when you're smiling at them. It makes them feel at ease, doesn't it? Um, what was I like? Energetic. I'm still energetic now, but when I was young, I had so much energy. Um, I think a doctor would probably say he's got ADHD to the extreme or whatever. <laughs> I just think like young kids have more energy anyway, don't they? I think it's fit tight on them calling them ADHD or whatever. So I, I was just always out on my bike, like from the age of 
four, five, I was out on my bike. Seven, I got into like rollerblading. And then later on, I picked up golf as well. So sport, particularly sport that is not a team sport. Um, I'm not an only child, but my, my sister's got a different dad. Um, so that it was just like me and the family home. Um, so I entertained yeah. myself quite a lot. Uh, but that doesn't mean I like my own company. I like to be around people. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to get into because, well, we're going to get into this, but you had a 14-year career in the army, didn't you? And the reason I ask about, you know, what was Young Mark like was, I wonder, you know, what led to you ultimately deciding to join the army? Uh, that's quite easy, really. I did the army cadets when I was young uh, and found it great fun. I then sort of said to my parents that I wanted to join the army and they weren't massively keen on it. It's probably around, you know, I'd be leaving school 17, 18-ish, you know. Uh, well, maybe younger than that, maybe leaving school 15, 16, saying I want to join the army, thinking my parents were like, get a trade. Um, so I kind of listened to them a bit and I did my work experience as a mechanic. So I did a, an apprenticeship as a transit van mechanic for four years finished my apprenticeship and thought, is this all there is to life? Am I going to stay in this garage for forever? Just fixing stuff and uh, like traveling to and from down the same road day in, day out. Uh, found it really quite laborious. And I went to the careers office one day just by myself as a sort of bit of a whim. I thought, uh, what would it be like if I joined the army? Uh, I said, I don't want to be a mechanic anymore. If I'm going to do something, I'd, I'd rather get another trade altogether. Uh, and they sort of said, well, you could, you know, with your GCSEs and stuff that you've got and the fact that you've already done a, an apprenticeship, you can pretty much pick from any of these jobs, which were quite good. So would you say that you knew from quite an early an early point that, you know, the typical route of, right, I'm going to do my academics, I'm going to go to uni, I'm then going to go get a job. Did you know from quite an early age that that wasn't going to be the route for you? Yeah, from probably about age three. I despise academia. I like challenging stuff and academia doesn't have space for challenging paradigms. Do you think that's almost quite synonymous with a lot of people that go into the army at the age of 17 and 18? There's a plethora of different types of people in the army from all sorts of backgrounds. I mean, it'd be very easy to tarnish it and say like, it's the infantry is full of white Northern lads from poor backgrounds mm. and then the the officers are all southern toffs and then you've got your commonwealth soldiers from all over the country that kind of hash in the middle of it but the reality of it is it's it is a bit different to that and i think it's a great structure for young men and women uh, as a whole carefully choosing my words here to see if i'm gonna say what i really think about the army and the military industrial complex I, i'd say they're two different things yeah, well, I'm sure we can get into that. Um, so, you know, you joined the army at, at what age was it? 22. You joined at 22 and you did 14 years. So what what were your early experiences like in the army? Just tell us a little bit about the your first few years there. So, as I said, I wanted a, a different trade. I, I realized that if I was, that was kind of a parent-driven thing. Like if you are going to go into the army, then... You, you want, I want you to have something that you can use when you get out. Um, 
So I was a telecoms engineer. So my first year was spent at Blanford Forum near Bournemouth, right down south, studying telecoms, um, both practical and sort of lectures and stuff. And then from there, I went to my first unit in uh, Bath and got right stuck into work. Afghanistan was hot off the press at the time, uh, and we were rotating through uh, sort of tours in Afghanistan doing our job, uh, which was to fit fixed infrastructure in for officers to base operations from. So we'd build big computer rooms, basically. And how long were you away from home at a time? Because I think... For a 22, 23, 24, any, any age in your 20s, leaving home, um, you were very close to your mum and, and going over to the Middle East. You know, how did you adapt to that, that lifestyle? Interesting. Uh, when you sort of... So the early days of a military career, a lot of us sort of stuck together. So the people that I were in basic training with, people that I was on phase one training with, phase two training... And then my first posting, first tours of Afghanistan, we were together for like five years. So we were really close friends, a really sort of tight-knit community. The installation technician community as a whole, there's only 300 of them in the army. So it's quite a tight-knit community anyway. And uh, you all kind of get along. And when you've got a decent job on, uh, time flies. You know, you get up, you have your breakfast, you go to work, finish work, go to the gym have your tea, go to bed, wake up, do it again. You get sort of a half day on Sunday to sort of think about things a little bit, but not. you haven't got time to be worried about anything. Uh, and I'd say that any spare time I did have was on sort of managing my relationships at the time with girlfriends and stuff, which was more difficult, um, being away from like a, an intimate partner for four months, six months at a time. That is... Uh, that's particularly challenging, um, and it's probably the reason why I'm not married now, uh, because it's really hard to maintain a relationship over a telephone. Yeah, we'll maybe get into that a little bit now then. I was going to ask, you know, what sort of stress does being away for, for that length of time put on your relationships? <laughs> uh, it's, well, it depends on the... If you're in Afghanistan, your option to do anything deceitful is very slim. You haven't got access to alcohol and there's very few women around. Back home, I think the the other half has got them them options, you know? They can go to a party and then the relationships can fragment, can't they? Um and it's it's quite a common thing, I think. Yeah. So you've got, I'm assuming, you know, typically a lot of males, a lot of testosterone in the room. And I would say it might be stereotypical, but probably quite a lot of alpha males. So tell us a little bit about the atmosphere and what it's like in, you know, in the, in the accommodation that you've got. Um, I know many of the others of them maybe have, you know, girlfriends, wives, kids, but you know, in that room with the group of lads, what's that like? Very rarely problematic. Very rarely. Uh, it's only when the problems only arise when people who are, so I, I was a corporal, which means I was kind of like middle management. So it goes private, lance corporal, corporal, sergeant. Then you're in like, uh, senior NCO, so you're senior 
management, but not an officer. So you, you're kind of working alongside officers to train them up into management. And it's when senior non-commissioned officers talk to junior lads like they've got a chin made of steel. That's when the, the problem happens. Somebody sort of berates somebody uh, on a personal level and hides behind the, the rank slide is sort of the, the chat about it. Um, that's the only time it becomes problematic. But it, like I say, within my trade group, which were quite close, tight-knit, we were very rarely doing jobs where we were like thinly spread on the ground. We sort of stuck together as teams and moved around. And our team looked after each other and sort of ex the external influences were batted off by my senior non-commissioned officers, um, which allowed us to sort of do our job. Uh, and we'd sort of go in and go out of places. We wouldn't sort of loiter. A lot of the time, people working within the army, they'll go to somewhere and they'll just wait around quite a lot, waiting for something to happen. Something will happen for a very short period of time. And then they'll have to, like, so they'll have to build a tentage village up, do something for a short amount of time, then close a tentage village down and travel back. Lots of just faffing around. We didn't really have that. We'd go in, do the bit that we needed to, and then leave. Um, which was the, like, that was the good thing about my job within the army. It was great when there was a job on the hard times in the army is when there isn't any work on. So Royal signals. So what, what was the Royal signals? What, what was your role and what was, you know, the group of lads that were around you or women as well, which shouldn't, shouldn't put you into a box. You know, what was the role of the, of the Royal signals? What were you doing day to day? So the, you said we were on the early bit of my career. So the early bit of my career, we were either preparing to go and do a specific job that had like a project manager. We're building X amount of buildings that are going to support. Well, we built, uh, probably shouldn't go into that. Uh, we built stuff that was used for purposes. Uh, it'd have a project manager. We'd turn up to a building site, uh, install cable infrastructure. Once the infrastructure's installed, we'd test it, we'd commission it. We'd hand it over to the new sort of person who was looking after the building. And when that was done, we'd leave that bit of the job and we'd go to another job. Uh, and that's how sort of the first six years of my career went. We did things like that. Then I got a bit bored of it, really. Or Afghan was closing down and nothing else was getting going. So I, uh, I did my physical training instructor course and started working in the gym. Tried to get a posting closer to home uh, and work on the relationship side of things. Uh, I've moved a girlfriend from up north to the Midlands where I was based to try and sort of get a work-life balance going on. That failed epically. Uh, then I worked in recruiting to try and sort of be closer to home and get my business going. And that was all right-ish, but the relationship failed that time as well. Uh, and then I, I went to, I finished at Stafford. Uh, I was in Kenya, COVID was going on and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I, uh, I struggled to deal with COVID moving around the world, people's opinions, uh, and what people believe was law and what I thought was stupidity, um, that's sort of where it all came crashing down for me mentally. Yeah, because 
being in the army and ultimately, you know, protecting our country is something obviously to admire. But do you think that the forces or the, you know, the army do enough or is there things in place to protect one's mental health for coming out of the army and also while you're in there? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Uh, uh, the thing that people will probably jump to with mental health is like, he was a soldier, he went out to a war zone, eliciting dead bodies and shooting bullets and stuff. I've never fired a bullet in anger in that sense. Like I say, when I went out to war zones, I fixed fixed infrastructure in buildings. Like I was in compounds that were secure. Um, so that side of like warfare was never my intention really. And soldiers that I do know that have been down that route, that's never been sort of, that isn't as challenging as managing your life outside the army, your relationships at home with your spouse, with your children. They're the things that, really sort of affect lads uh mental stability um for the most part and for me I've, I've what affected me was i had a very polarizing view towards covid and being vaccinated which wasn't a view that my chain of command had if we go back a few years before covid let's go back m many many years before covid you know Speaking about your mental health for for young men or for men at any age wasn't really a common thing to do, you know. What was it like for for lads in the army, you know, to talk about their feelings between other men? You know, was that something that, that they did or that you did? Or was it not until later on and, you know, in the years just before you left that, you know, speaking about your feelings became more more normalized? I'll challenge speaking about feelings. I don't think you need to speak about feelings. I don't necessarily think about stuff on a deep level that hurts me. Um, my thoughts might not be like going right, but it's not It's not a feeling. I don't need to speak about my feelings. I just need to speak my thoughts to somebody that wants to listen to me. I don't need them to, I just need them to listen really about whatever's going on in my head and like maybe get something out. But it's it's not necessarily a feeling. Did you have those people around you to 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 speak to? Well, I'm quite a sociable animal, so I'll, you know, I'd go out with my friends on the weekend and we'd drink too much. Probably, yes, binge drinking's a thing in the army, although it's quiet and right down. So the first first six years of my army career, when uh, we're going in and out of Afghanistan, when lads come back, they'd have a month's leave, and people would get like insanely drunk when they got back. <laughs> Also, your alcohol tolerances were like lowered because you hadn't drank for six months. Lower. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, there was always somebody to do something with. You know, uh, on the camps that I lived on, for the most part, there was always a, a few people who were around or uh, you'd go back home and you'd do something with your friends on a weekend. But yeah, 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 yeah. There was always, I mean, I suppose you could isolate yourself if you wanted to or you can find somebody to speak to if you want to. Um a lot of anything in life is you've, you've got to do it. You know, if you feel like shit. Do you think it's maybe a case of a lot of men still to this day putting on a brave face? <laughs> or do you think we are getting better at, at, at managing our own mental health? There's a mental health crisis because the world's gone to pot, not because people are getting any weaker. Interesting. You know, humans are wildly capable, but the, the taxes and pressures and oppression put on humans is insane. We're constantly surveilled. 
you know, you've got to be worried about everything all the time for everybody else. It, it's not, it, it's not, a, you can't. So for me, my, my sort of thing is, well, uh, I'm trying to bring up a book and I can't think the name of it, but basically the saying no to some stuff or just not even taking it in. So like, I don't watch television. I definitely don't watch the news because that's all negativity stuff that like kind of builds up. And that, that external noise from the world is like, that's so loud if you allow yourself to listen to it. And I think that is probably what's more driving a mental health crisis than, you know, people not being paid enough for the amount of work that they do to put petrol in the car and buy cereal and milk. But then, like, farmers' milk is dictated what price it's sold at by the bloody corporations. So corporate power... Uh, capitalism at the very very top i think they're probably the thing that make people upset and people know about it now as well people aren't thick that upsets them and it's never been it's never been easier to consume this content on a daily basis you oh pick yeah up your phone you go on instagram it's there you go on facebook it's there yeah, yeah you put the news on it's there you go down the pub and the man at the end of the bar suddenly wants to talk about politics it's it's always there it's very hard to escape it so i think it's really important I'd argue, though, that talking politics with the guy at the bar is is more constructive than taking any information in from the BBC because they're pushing a narrative, whereas a guy at the bar will have a thought, opinion, he'll probably be local to your area, he'll probably know somebody or something, that there'll be some sort of connection there. The BBC is just a, a marketing tool to push a narrative. Yeah, we've got that cult, cancel culture now, haven't we, where everybody's really tiptoeing around what they want to say. I don't. Yeah, you don't, but a lot of people do. Um, I mean, and now more than any other time, I think, with, you know, the the war that we've got going on over in the Middle East, we've also got, you know, Russia, Ukraine. Everyone really, really tiptoes around that because they're worried about, you know, the consequences of what they say. Is it going to lead to, you know, their boss being unhappy? Is it going to lead to... That's an interesting one. Okay. Yeah. So something I say on social media, my boss then has the ability to say, look, you're fired because I said something on social media. I had an opinion about something and your job can be put at risk. I think I there was a friend who posted something on LinkedIn and he posted a factual information about something that was general knowledge in the press. It was in papers and he sort of repeated it with a bit of a question and he, he lost his job over it. I don't know how employers have the capability to it this, this is the sort of the oppression thing that i was alluded to before like people are worried that something might happen to them for what they have to say but that's because people work for people as soon as you're on boss you can say whatever you want whenever you want however you want the, the, yeah. only, the only person who's going to suffer for it is maybe me but if somebody doesn't like my thoughts feelings opinions about stuff and doesn't want to work with me great i've identified somebody who's a no for me but, yeah, having your narrative controlled, which the military do do, you can't have uh, – there's like there's teams of guys that will go around trying to find soldiers doing things online that are maybe a bit anti-military or pro-Trump or something like that, and people can really lose their shit over it. And it's just a, an opinion, somebody's opinion, man. Like, Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, 
But it's okay for me and you saying that as people that do work for themselves. Um, I wonder if we would have a little bit of a different response if we were making, you know, a great salary for working for someone else. We're looking after our kids. We're looking after our wives. We're, we're, doing, we're doing life. Now, a lot of people don't want to give that up for potentially saying the wrong thing. Yeah. So going back to what is your true potential, like if I I would not be able to fulfill my potential if I was working for BAE Systems. No offense to anyone that's over that. <laughs> they're, uh, you know, they're a great company. They're going upwards and we like wars, don't we? But I think a lot of, okay. So a lot of people are bothered about wars and are military industrial complex perpetuating wars, trident nuclear submarines. Yeah, just that as an example. But yet, like 80% of the pension will be in BAE systems. So the people will be moaning that they don't like, or they'll have a Ukraine flag outside their house, but yet have the pension invested in BAE systems. Virtue signaling. I have a big problem with that. <laughs> I find it hard to talk on um, these matters because you're always going to get somebody that says, what do you know about this? You know, you're not qualified to talk on this matter. And I think that's also what puts people off from, from giving their own opinions. We don't have to be qualified to talk about something. You don't have to be qualified to have an opinion, do you? Well, who made qualifications a thing? The schooling system made qualifications a thing. The schooling system trains you to go out and get a job so that you work perpetually Getting a mortgage, which means about until you die, doesn't it? Like the word mortgage broken down in Latin is basically alone until you're dead. Uh, and then yeah, what you do when you die is the government takes half of that and adds it to their pot. And then you've got somebody like Richie Sunak sat at the front who's got, you know, 30 million a year in bloody passive income coming in from his investments. Like the schooling system's what's wrong. For me, I, I don't think uh, the, the idea of going out, getting qualified to do a job is what's wrong. You, you need to learn how to create economic output. You need to learn how to look after communities and grow communities. But we're getting a bit Russell Brandy here. <laughs> so what led to enough's enough when it comes to your career in the army after a long career of 14 years? Uh, I kept trying to kill myself. Um, so I drank uh sort of on the weekend um been drinking or whatever and then around the age of 30 started taking my life a little bit more seriously um but uh, at the same sort of time uh, one of my childhood best friends killed himself uh so i was very perplexed my relationship broke down i was in a car crash i broke my shoulder uh, i had a property development that went south and I lost a lot of money. So there's a huge amount of debt and all of them building up. I didn't have enough coping mechanisms to deal with A, the grief, B, the loss of the relationship. The pain in my shoulder was all right, but it meant that I couldn't go to the gym. I didn't really have an outlet at that time. And uh, I sort of got really heavily into alcohol. Uh, and then I sort of had these negative thoughts and driving through in my mind that I really didn't have control over. Um, yeah, I probably didn't have control over the way I thought at the time. And I was, although I'd sort of used alcohol as escapism, 
I then thought, oh, well, I'll escape the world. Uh, and three times I ended up on a hospital bed after sort of getting so blackout drunk. Uh, I'd, I'd sort of drank maybe three litres of uh, like spirits to sort of say like, this is enough, we'll have enough, we'll sort of die now. Is this something you've shared before? Yeah, I've spoken about it before. Um, I've spoken about depression quite a bit and sort of the use of antidepressant drugs and them not being very helpful at all. The use of psychedelic mushrooms and them being very helpful indeed. But the thing that's most helpful is doing what I want to do with my life. I just never thought that I was going to be able to do what I wanted to do with my life uh, to the level that I'm doing it. I didn't. I never thought I'd get this far in property, I don't think. I don't think I had the right amount of self-belief. That smiley young boy, when he was four years old, that, that had somehow, in, in around that time, at about 30 years old, he had it disappeared. And for whatever reason, I didn't have the right strategies at the time to deal with everything that was going on in my life. Or the right role models. Maybe I had sort of business coaches and stuff, but they weren't able to help me financially. Oh, going back to my mum, financially... I got sorted out by by my mother. Uh, she allowed me to buy half of our family home, which uh, alleviated the the financial problem was over a hundred thousand pounds, and I was earning thirty grand a year. So she managed to alleviate that problem. I managed to sell that property deal on, and since that, I've done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight more property deals that have you know. It, it's only at that point that my life changed. But I had to hit rock bottom to be so focused on my business the way that I am now or be able to focus and unfocus. In, you know, I had some time off over Christmas, enjoyed myself, drank alcohol and was all right. But now I'm very much back in the zone. I've done, I'm doing dry January and um, I've got a couple of property things on the go uh, and I'm firing on all cylinders with that now. So uh, I learned a lot about myself when I was at my lowest point. And I don't think it was a bad thing to to go that low. It's funny that you said that you had to hit rock bottom. It's often that that thing of, you know, I'll stop smoking when I have a heart attack or I'll stop drinking when, you know, I get this disease or I'll, uh, I'll start going to the gym when I've put on this much weight or, you know, there's always got to be a catalyst for it. And a lot of people often... Um, are really grateful in the end for them dark times that they had um for for eventually getting over that and and coming back stronger all for it yeah it's certainly my mind however it was when i was 30 and things were hard i'm 37 now and i'd say that my depression has been gone for two years at least um or i've been like really really good and quite far away from depression. For me, I'll describe what depression is for me. It's like a cloudiness in my brain where I can't think, feel, adjudicate, manage problems, uh, and I get exhausted really, really quick. Normally, I wake up, I'm firing on all cylinders, I can solve large-scale problems with multiple parts moving to them. I was a project manager in the Army as a telecoms engineer. I can manage men, budgets, things like that. But I wasn't able to like manage which way to drive my car. Like I was confused almost. Um, and so low on energy. I'd still go to the gym, I'd still weight train, but my enthusiasm was just not there at all. 
Um, even with so, I did three years of sobriety. And when my depression came in, sort of the third time uh, <clears throat> during a, a period of sobriety, yeah, that was that was really really hard. Because I thought the sobriety would, you know, kick me all the way into happiness for forever. And uh, it turned out some of the sort of the military industrial complex as a whole basically was and the the watching me how i did stuff that that was the straw that broke the camel's back with the as i had, yeah but i didn't i didn't really want to leave the army like I, all the there was loads of good bits about it i didn't want to leave but i had to i had to go through that that pain to understand that it was so not me i couldn't lie to myself and say like the job's good Although we're blowing up some stuff here and there as a whole, you know, I get paid two and a half grand a month and it's quite easy. I get quite a lot of downtime, get to do a lot of sport. But the whole idea of what the army is and, and just really doesn't resonate in my core well. And I think that's what made me essentially sad. And I wasn't brave enough to sort of go, no, stuff the army. I'll raise 500 grand and build a property portfolio. I didn't have the skill set to do that either. So I had to... At some point, I had to learn the skills that I've got now to be able to do what I'm doing now. And the only thing that drove me to learn those skills was the fact that if I didn't, I'm going to be fucking depressed for the rest of my life. So do you have any regrets about, <laughs> about you know, them 14 years? Or would if you were to go back, would you do it all again the same? Yeah. I, uh... You do it all? I very rarely regret anything. I, I can... If I look back on something that I did that I don't like, I can learn from it, but I don't regret it. I think it's a wasted emotion or thought. Was it what you thought it was going to be? Mm, yeah, pretty much. So going back on to what you were saying about antidepressants, um, I've certainly been on and off them, not for depression, but for me, for, for anxiety. Having, um, you know, three months of time where I'm just like super anxious, can't leave the house type thing where you know, the whole world is going upside down. But you said something that was quite interesting there on um, psychedelics. Yeah. And I'm a, a huge Joe Rogan fan, yeah. as many people all know. And he's a, a big advocate for, for psychedelics. And in America, um, it's much, much more widely accepted to talk about drugs. Class A drugs is what they is are. It? <laughs> Come to Morecambe. There's plenty of people talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> but using them recreationally and then using them medicinally, how do you think it's benefited you? So there's not a lot of drugs that I haven't used. Uh, I haven't used heroin, but my friend who killed himself, he overdosed on heroin. I mean, magic mushrooms get you into a relationship. For me, they get me into a relationship with God. I can feel... Uh, Stuff that I should or shouldn't be doing more. Or if somebody's with, if I'm doing mushrooms with somebody, I can sort of tap into things that they're, either, well, I've tapped into things that they're sad about and managed to sort of talk to them and ease them through stuff. And uh, that's on like a, a using level. As a micro dose, though, a micro dose, uh, I did my, so I was very scared of getting into psychedelic drugs. Although I'd done, you know, cannabis, cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, amphetamines, 
I've never touched psychedelic drugs in a recreational way. I was always dead scared of it, especially acid. I'm, I'm still scared of acid now, and I've only done that like twice. That's so long and not always as sort of spiritual, I don't think. So I was, I was really apprehensive. I had depression, and I was like, these pills aren't sorting it. People on the internet are saying that psychedelics can help with depression. It was like a last chance resort almost. Like, I'm going to have to try it, man, because this I'm out running and I'm sad. I'm in the gym. I'm sad. My relationship's okay and I'm sad. And I don't know what happened. Over a period of, let's say we had 6, 12, 24, maybe 24 microdoses every three days made more of a difference than any counseling session, any uh, sertraline or sertralopam. It just uh, has a better effect. It's interesting, and I'm quite eager to see, you know, what's going to happen over the next 10, 15, 20 years. I know they're already, um, I, I'm pretty sure they're now allowing MDMA uh, for uh, the use of treatment of depression. Um, I think that's coming to the UK, or it's already came to the UK. Well, it, it is. That's that's all sertraline and sertralopram are. They're all derivatives of MDMA. It's very interesting. I'm not sure which way it's going to go. I don't think with this this government or it's one of those things. I think that the older generation are why like massively, massively against it, and they're not very open minded to um, the use of drugs for treatment purposes yeah because they were categorically brainwashed for ages after prohibition to make this so I'm recently reading a book called chasing the scream and it was the transition from cocaine in a coke can heroin on the shelf that you could buy and liquor on the shelf that you could buy to then all of that being illegal and then there being an addiction problem so there was loads of people that were using these products. There was a taxed product that was on the shelf. And then they took the product off the shelf. And then crime increased and the mafia happened. And then the mafia gained sole control over the drug trade in America. And uh, the the police got a, a new bit to it. It's it's crazy. That, that book around all that story just absolutely blew my mind. It's out of design. We have a war on drugs out of design. It's it's wanted by somebody somewhere. We don't want healthy people. No, we don't want healthy people, but I don't think the answer is legalize all drugs because I think that creates a huge problem in itself. Yeah, it is. Because they're out there anyway. I could get any drug now quicker than I could get a pizza. So why not just put it into the taxable economy? It'd just be interesting to know what effect that would have on people if it was that easy to get because we know that in we don't just want people going and, and getting heroin we don't want people just going and getting crack cocaine you know we're talking about the use of psychedelics for example we don't want people just you know having easy access to extremely addictive drugs they already have easy access to extremely addictive drugs anybody who says anything different is kidding themselves but because it's illegal people won't go get it on many people majority of people i disagree strongly like Sex is readily available in Amsterdam. You can just wander into a prostitute's office, essentially, and have sex. They have the lowest child pregnancy. Like, sometimes the way that we're 
given paradigms, it's not the reality of the situation. And psychedelic drugs and the use of them for mental health problems, they've been documented for years and years and years and years and years. It's only drug companies. It's your big pharma companies that don't want them because they don't want healthy people. They want to send you shit drugs that don't work. 50% of all pharmaceutical drugs are placebo. 50% of the drugs that are on the market on the shelf do not work. At least illegal drugs work. <laughs> so have you have you been down, you know, the the traditional talking therapy routes? Have you tried them? Um, have you found them helpful if you have? From like the age of 18, I had a, a psychiatrist, one of my first girlfriends. She, uh, she tried to kill herself uh, and sort of blamed me. Or I felt blamed or I didn't feel like... There was a couple of things going on. I didn't feel very normal in the world. I didn't feel very normal in my relationship. And I felt like I needed to talk to somebody. So I, I addressed it with my mum. And she said, okay, well, we'll find somebody. Uh, my dad thought that the idea was absolutely mental. Interesting. My mum and dad were still together at the time. So maybe it was even younger than that, that I was thinking these things. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Maybe they weren't together. Maybe we were in the same room. But anyway, one of my first psychiatrists I found really helpful. And since then, since that time, I've taken an active interest in it as well. So I've read literature about uh, mental health and stuff. I've read literature on psychedelic drugs, the effects from like studies of like doctors that have studied stuff and had either good or negative, uh, mainly all good though, mainly all positive stuff that I've read. I've found anything out there that says that, you know, if you're taking something medically with the want to help your brain, that it have a really adverse effect. If you're taking something to get high, then you can have a really adverse effect, mainly because that's you're taking it for the wrong reasons. As I sort of alluded to, I find it a spiritual experience uh, with any sort of psychedelic drug. So if I take it in a spiritual manner, I think about what I've put in my body that day what I've put in my mind that day, why I'm doing it, and try and get myself into a meditative state or a heightened meditative state. I, I meditate as well, and I'd say that that's another thing that, you know, people should be taught. It should be taught in school. You need to be at one with your thought processes and how your brain does stuff and allowed to make yourself feel happy. I'm a big fan of meditation. Um, it's definitely, definitely had a a great impact on me and I notice the difference when I'm not doing it and a lot of people think that you know you sit there you have to have your legs crossed and be doing this um but it's not the case at all even just sitting for five minutes every day and just getting in that habit of just focusing on your breath or sometimes you know just sitting there and just allowing whatever thoughts come to you and just not reacting to them it has it has had a huge, a huge impact on me. Um, but again, a lot of people go, I'm not meditating. And like, Come on, that's stupid. Like, you know, but until you try it, you don't know. Yeah. So going down to the lowest points in my life, I probably wouldn't have found meditation and the uses of it. Uh, you know, and like a doctor never said, have you tried meditation? It was the outside world that said, if you tried meditation. I mean, yeah. I mean, they don't go, oh, 
you know, what's your diet like? Are you drinking a load of alcohol? Are you exercising? It's straight away, here's a pill. No, they'll ask you how much alcohol you're drinking. They won't say how much Coca-Cola you're drinking, how much, what's your sugar intake like? Um, I mean, for, for me, um, I've always been sort of very conscious about the way that my physique is, whether I'm riding a bike, cycling, and trying to keep weight off so I'm as light as possible when I'm cycling up hills, or if I'm trying to put muscle mass on and, you know, being conscious about how much protein I'm taking in. I've always been quite conscious, and I don't drink fizzy pop. I don't really like it. I only, uh, I only have fizzy pop with alcohol, really, to water it down, to make alcohol more palatable. But, yeah, the diet of, you know, monster drinks. Some guy, one of my builders is drinking four monster drinks a day, man. Like, that's going to give you anxiety. <laughs> but it's also going to keep him on the job, so. <laughs> Before yeah. we move on from, from this, I think it's important to say, that, you know, I don't think you are um, telling people, hey, go take drugs. I think you're trying to say that, look, if something's not working for you, then we should be slightly more open, open-minded to the fact that, hey, you know, maybe you could try psychedelics as another option. Um, for example, I know uh, marijuana is not uh, uh, a psychedelic drug as such, but you know, for the use of pain, you know, chronic pain, people that use marijuana for, for you know, back pain that they've had for years. Um, it's proven to be so helpful for these people. So I think we just need to be a little bit more open-minded when it comes to uh, the use of this stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with what you're saying there. I'm quite, I, I throw stuff out there quite strongly, don't I? I funnily enough, Cannabis is a drug that I would stay well clear from. It doesn't doesn't resonate well with me at all. Whenever I've done, I did it earlier in life, and I did it uh, maybe a few months ago now, and I was like, "This is horrible. I, I'm not getting any benefit from this." Um, but I know people that have taken like oils for pain for quite a long time, and they've uh, or people that are with like sort of life ending threatening illnesses where it's given them such a better quality of life towards the end of their, that sort of time. So yeah, I, I do think we should be a lot more open about it. So we've, uh, we've got through that period of in that period in your life and you know, what was next for you? What did you, you've came out of the army. What was, what, what were you going to do? While I was in the army, we did property education stuff. 2017, I did my first sort of property education stuff with a company called legacy. It then moved to Asset Academy. I now think it's completely devolved. Um, and uh, I did a course on buy-to-let property, HMOs, uh, distressed property. Uh, I, I did like a, a three-day course that covered a, all the other strategies that they had to sell. They had upsells to it all. Um, and then I, I found the information very good, but there wasn't sort of like, they sort of sell it as a community, but there wasn't really a sense of community. And then I got a, a mentor and they sort of guided me in a, a couple of property deals. One of them didn't go so well, but without that property education, that financial commitment jumping in, I probably wouldn't have moved as, as far as I have in property and got as far with it. Um, loose numbers. I'd spent like 50 grand on education and I'd, I bought a house, one house. 
which was a, a buy-to-let thing. I bought it at auction for 42 grand, spent five grand on it. It was worth 80. The bank gave me back 60. I was like, woo, we know what we're doing here. Then my next deal, I bought it for 50 grand. I spent 100 grand on it and I sold it for 30 grand. Uh, and that was all happening around that time. What was, where we're going? So we did education. It's 2017, 2018, 2019. Uh, probably getting things together. 2020, 2019, 2020, I set up my own property networking event because I knew the strength of being around other people. Yeah. Uh, who you're around is who you become. The, the five closest people you hang around with, that's what you're going to look like. That's going to be your outcome. So, I was conscious to get better people around me. And also, I like to give back. You know, I've spent all this money on this education. I do know lots of stuff about property. Albeit, it might be a bit like talking about drugs sometimes. And it's like, you've got to do your own due diligence, got to do your own research. What what strategy is right for you might not be right for me. But I do know a lot of stuff. And I, if I don't know, I, I know somebody who does. So I like to connect people as well. I, I get something from that. I find it. It fills a, a part of me up. I get I get a good feeling from it. You know, if I if this guy's got this and that girl's got that and you put it together and you've got one of these, great. Glad I managed to introduce you guys to get something done. Um so started the Bay Property Networking event with Katie Banks, and then Peter Baker came along. I had a bit of a mental breakdown about this point and I've completely stepped back from it. And they've taken the the wheel with the Bay Property Network now, and I just do a bit of marketing in the background, talk about it to people like you, push it out on social media. But we've, we've still got a, a great group of people. Uh, we're currently battling with Morecambe Council about selective licensing, and if it wasn't for sort of the power of our network, we wouldn't have been able to join up so many landlords to sort of say to the council that they, they were trying to do it a bit shiftily, I think, um, and they wanted to charge us 500 quid per property uh, for a selective landlord license that effectively all the people in the room had already ticked all the criteria. They were just going to take money off us uh, and time to to make that happen. So we've sort of contested it, and that's sat in the ether now. What else does come from it? We do like uh, site visits and stuff as well. So people who've got projects on, we invite people in the group to come down, or not in the group, it's on Eventbrite. Anybody can come and have a look. So to say, this is what was good, this is what was bad, this is what I'd do different, and you can learn from each other. Because in property, it's quite a lonely world, right? So getting together with people that are doing your kind of thing, uh, brushing shoulders with the right people. Uh, if it, Not just developers, you know, like the right um, solicitors, the right uh, cleaners, the right uh, plumbers, joiners, tilers, whatever. Like, if you've got a community of people that you like, know, and trust, it makes, uh, it makes bringing things to fruition a lot easier. Well, I know you're an avid networker because that's where I met you. <laughs> you're right at the front. And just like you said, that smiley character was the first one to greet me and say hello. So I know I know uh, that, well, it doesn't surprise me that you have your own networking event. Um, but in terms of purchasing the properties, I know you go down a little bit of a different route. Um, I seen something on your LinkedIn, which was saying, you know, if we were to just save up our money and work really hard and save and buy and save and buy, it would take many, 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 many years before you're able to to purchase, you know, uh, or by the time you get to a large portfolio. So, you know, how do you go about it? So the way that I do it now, I raise, well, I find deals. That's the first thing you need to do. You need to find 
uh, a property that is either substantially below market value or can be developed to increase its value exponentially without a huge development cost. So you're looking to create, nearest damn it, a 30% margin uh, in a deal. Once you've found a deal where not only you will profit, but somebody else can profit from it too, with little work uh, from their part, then I, I marry a good deal up with somebody who's got some money. I can make you more money than what you're currently making with your money. Would you like to do a deal with me where you make money and I get a property? And for anyone listening that would like to maybe get involved in something like this, you know, I know you, you've paid for your education. Um, and ultimately, you know, that's how you have got to where you've got to now. But for anyone listening, you know, where might you find these people that have got that type of money to, to invest? That's a very, very interesting question. They normally say it's like one degree of separation. So normally it's somebody around your circle who will have a pot of cash to do maybe your first deal. For me, my mum helped me out with my first deal. She helped me out when it went wrong, and she helped me out with uh, my first off service combination deal. In the background, I did a couple of deals in Burnley with people I'd never met before, just from networking events or online, because I've now got quite a big online presence. I've talked about all sorts of stuff on Facebook before now, and then I've sort of built an Instagram that's a bit, different like it's it's weird when we get into this so i've got a facebook personal facebook business instagram personal instagram business then i've got linkedin and i've had to create a brand for me and a brand for bay property uh and because i've taken time to create that to create its own sort of narrative people like know and trust me from being online they've followed me for years they've seen that i've done multiple deals They've seen that I'm active. They see that I'm at networking events. They see that I'm out viewing properties. They see that I'm with different people viewing their projects. And I've, I've now got to the place where I can buy a house at auction with, I had some money in my bank. I had 20 grand in my bank at the time, but I've currently got a refurb going on. Uh, and I had to put 10 grand down that day to secure this deal, but I've got it 110 grand discounted. And I put that out into the ether and somebody I've never met before, I've managed to line up to give me £100,000 worth investment towards that deal to get it purchased uh, and furnished. But that's that's because of my network. That isn't because of the one degree of separation, which when I first got into property and raising finance, that's what they'll say. It'd be If you say what you're doing around everybody that you're around and you have a good deal, there's somebody in that circle that will probably have some money to be able to support it. I haven't necessarily found that to be true. So what's the what's the goal? What's the goal when it comes to property for you? You know, why property? Uh, why property? So a 16-year-old Mark Nichols would have said, by the time that I retire, I will have five houses that will pay me my income for my retirement. I do not want to buy into your pension. I don't want you to have control over my money. I think that's a silly idea. Uh, I think you're lying to me. At 37, I feel exactly the same. I do not want anybody else to have control over my wealth. Uh, I want to be able to drive that as far forward as possible, um, albeit the government are going to make it as hard as possible to to do it. But 
uh, I think property is the best strategy for creating uh, wealth in a short period of time. Um, and I enjoy it. Like, I like architecture. I like beautiful Victorian buildings. I like, I even like little two up, two down terraces. I think the uh, buildings are beautiful, especially old buildings. And uh, to modernize them and give them uh, a purpose for a family to live in, I, I like that. I, something that makes me feel good. Other people might not feel like that about property, which is, you know, that's fine. If they want to invest in stocks and shares or gold or businesses or whatever, that, that's fine. You don't always, you don't have to do what we do. What have you learned through the, the 14 years in the army that have prepared you for, for business now, do you think? If anything. Oh, that's quite a good one. Project management skills. So most projects won't go to timeline. They won't go to budget. They won't. You know, things go wrong all the time. Forget about it. Just get on with it. Address that there's something gone wrong. Learn from that. Yeah, I think it's important to set expectations right from the start when working with anybody and tell them, look, there's going to be times where I'm going to have to pick up the phone to you and say, this hasn't arrived or the refurb's going to go over by a thousand pounds or whatever it might be. But you can often, um, when you prepare whoever it is that you're working with, that these things could happen. If it does happen, the situation's already being handled because you've already let them know in advance that, Hey, this might happen. Yeah. Whereas if you're not upfront and you say, Hey, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to have this to you at this point, and it's all going to be, you know, hunky-dory. That's often when, you know, you can shoot yourself in the foot a little bit. Yeah, I mean, from the get-go, I probably do. I'm very optimistic. I think in property, you have to be a crazy optimist. The, the current development that I'm in now, when I bought that, I thought it was a great buy. To be honest, the structure of the building and the way that the flats are set out, it is a great buy for that. But the amount of work that's had to be undone, to be redone, things straightened out, walls rebuilt, roofs off, floor joists in, like, it's a lot. And it's taken its toll. And things going wrong, things being done, like, not right or not to, not how I wanted them, like, redoing them. Uh, yeah, there's... On building sites, there's always issues. You know, like the scaffolding, man. The scaffolding pulled off uh, a lintel, so then now there's a, a leak in the roof, and then the roof's just been replastered inside. So now I've got wet plaster because the wind blew the scaffolding. Like you couldn't anticipate that happening, but it's happened. So you you sort the scaffolding out with the ring the scaffolder up. I've got a problem. Can you help me? Yes, I'll help you. Then you ring out the, the guy who does briefing for you. Hi, can you help me? Yeah, I'll help you. And uh, that's another thing. But the power of the network, when I pick up my phone, it's it's somebody who does want to help me on the other end of it because they know that I'll help them the majority of the time as well. What do you think of the property education space? I mean, I've got a mentor now. Yeah. Um, still do. But I've also been through a property education that's not very good. Um, but... You know, what's your thoughts on property education? I mean, there's some terrible, terrible educators out there. Um, but let me let me ask you. Uh, for me, there's only one, really, that I like listening to, and that's Danny Inman, Prosperity Network. I haven't seen anybody who's got his experience 
the fact that it's current in the market and the fact that it is very factual, it's it's not marketing. Uh, the entry level to getting his education is the prices, you know, it's less than a hundred pounds and you can follow him on social media and stuff and he'll give you a nuggets of gold information. And I've seen a lot of them. I've been to a lot of them. And uh, that's for me, that's, uh, oh, actually there's a guy called Steve Green. Uh, he's an ex-military guy. I think he's all right too. That's, that's my opinion and a couple of name drops. <laughs> I won't ask you to name drop any that you don't like. <laughs> no, I, w I wouldn't do that anyway. There's uh, a book called The Four Agreements. And uh, one of those agreements is called Be Impeccable With Your Word. And basically, if you sort of slander somebody, it's not doing any good for you, me, or anybody else listening. It's There's no need to do it. I acknowledge that something wasn't right for me in that property education space, but it might be all right for somebody else. I 100% agree with that. Um, I mean, you can't post something in a property Facebook group without somebody rearing their head and just telling you that they don't agree just for the sake of not agreeing. And, you know, it's the same with social media. You put a post out and you'll have, you know, nine good comments, but one or two of them will just be these people that sit there on their phone. I mean, I've got less than a thousand followers and I get that. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know how these people with, you know, a million followers can deal with the amount of negativity that comes their way. But, you know, it is what it is. You've got to have haters. It means you're doing something right. All that means is that they, they're acknowledging that they're not doing something right in their life. Deep down, they're like, he can't say that. No, you can't say that because you're not in a position where you have the authority, the knowledge, the skill set or whatever to be able to say that. I think another problem with the with the property education space is, you know, follow me and you'll be financially free in three months and, you know, making these really outlandish, bold claims. I, have, I don't actually see that anymore. Oh, it's out there. It's out there. It's definitely <laughs> out there. <laughs> Maybe my algorithm's just on my side a little bit more. It is a little bit, I think it must be, because it's definitely out there. And I think it's quite it's quite damaging. And I think there's, I don't know if it's in the rise of Andrew Tate or these type of people, but I saw um, a video the other day where it was like, if you don't make £400,000 per year, you should be ashamed of yourself. You shouldn't go home to your wife. You should... <laughs> And I just think this type of messaging is so harmful and it's definitely marketing, but who's looking at that? Probably 17 year olds, 16 year olds that are getting to 18 and thinking, right, this is what I've got to do to be happy. This is what I've got to do to be a man, This, you know, and I think it's quite damaging because it's, you know, it's so far from true. Um, 400,000 pounds is <laughs> a hell of a lot of money. Well, I, uh, you said happy, so you can't be happy, but you can strive for fulfillment. If you feel fulfilled, you will inevitably become happy, but happiness you can't have all the time because you've got to have those, those harder times where you, you're grinding, you're working to get an outcome. And then at the end, you'll feel fulfilled and you'll be like, well, I did that. Then you're happy, but then you're straight back into, well, I've got to be doing something. So what are we doing? We'll do this. Is it going to be easy? No, it's going to be really hard. So this year I want to try and build an apartment hotel. 
Is that going to be easy? No, it's going to be really hard. Am I going to have to do things that I didn't do before? Yes. Do I have the skill set to be able to do that currently? No, I'm going to learn them on the way. But doing that makes me happy. Um, as for the financial, ah, this is one, financial freedom figure. That's something I, I wrote down a few years ago. How much money do I need to earn net per month so that I don't have to work again? I think that figure was like two and a half grand. But then the reality is you've got like taxes, solicitors, boilers, tenants doing things so that the property needs some work here and there because you'd like to look after them. And then that figure has crept up over the years and I'm still not probably in that financial freedom figure. Although my, my wealth is high, so I've got financial mobility. I can choose to, you know, I could choose to sell a property to do something over here, or I could choose to raise finance. The fact that I've got stuff behind me makes it easier to do now. And the longer that you do something, the better you get at it, the easier it is to do stuff, right? But setting a number at, at crazy in the sky for to earn a month, I think is a bit stupid, yeah. Like, my, for instance, I think I want to earn £10,000 net per month uh, as a goal, and I'm not quite there. I think you're absolutely right. I think um, putting a figure on it can ultimately lead to, you can put a figure on it, that's absolutely fine. I think it's when you put a time scale on it. Because when you put a time scale on a figure and you don't reach it, then you start going, well, well, you know, that, that's what can lead to the unfulfillment because you feel like you haven't achieved the goal. Well, there's two ways of looking at that as well, isn't there? Because it, whatever you, you should write everything down. If you don't write it down, you've got no chance of doing it, right? So but we're going a bit into goal setting now, aren't we? We're kind of merging over here. Um, so I have a, a diary. I'll write stuff down every day. I'll have a weekly goal, um, and I'll review it at the end of the week, basically. And I'll have a daily goal, almost like a, an eat that frog task at the top of your list of things to do. Um, but at the front of that journal, I've got sort of, you know, two-year goals. Like we want to... I want to build an apartment hotel. I've got two blocks of service departments currently that I've developed. I think the next thing is to, to do something a little bit bigger for a couple of reasons, but uh, that's written down. That's that's a goal that I've written down. Uh, the, the financial goal is also written down. I want to earn that a month. Um, but I've been writing that down for years and 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 years, and years with the expectation of it taking more time. However, if I'd never gone for the £10,000 and I'd stayed at the £2,000 financial freedom figure, I might have I've kind of capped myself a bit. So you do need to be a bit dreamy with it, but you also need to be a bit real with it. It's, and somebody who does work in a space where they earn billions a year is going to think financially different. Somebody earns hundreds of millions, somebody who earns millions, somebody earns hundreds of thousands, somebody who earns tens of thousands, and somebody who's like literally just left school and hasn't earned a penny yet. They're all very different spectrums of something. I was speaking to someone last week about this, actually, um, who did the first podcast with me. And we were talking about how, you know, everybody's financial freedom figure is, is so different. You don't, you know, for, for, for you, you know, a couple of holidays a year, your bills being paid, which might only come to, you know, mortgage and bills, a thousand pounds, you know, a couple of car payments, but you know, it might be 3000 pounds. Whereas for someone else, if you want to go on more luxury holidays or you want to eat out more often, or, you know, it's whatever it is that makes you happy. 
and and f- feel fulfilled. There's no right or wrong answer, but everybody's going to have a different number, aren't they? Um, but I think it's I think it is important to have some sort of investment, um, some sort of investment vehicle that is going to help you get to that figure. Um, and property is brilliant because obviously it pays you monthly and not just grows. Yeah. I mean, you need to think about money, right? So we, we sort of happiness, fulfillment, money. We live in a capitalist society. Like it's the thing that like we do. <laughs> so you, you've got to have a strategy around it and rolling back. Some people's strategies go to work. I like snowboarding, but I don't want to do that as a job. So when I go on holiday, I like to go snowboarding. Is it expensive? Yes. I try and keep it really, really, really cheap, to be honest. I just sort of go off with a mate. We don't eat out. We eat, like, pack lunches and stuff. We go to a park. We go to Austria. We don't go to, like, Whistler or wherever. It's just as good snow, just as good parks, just as good rails. Uh, Go for five days because that's about all my body can manage at 37 years old. And uh, that's, like, my one holiday a year. That's my expectation of going away. Some people like to go to Dubai first class. Cool, whatever. I'll probably do that later on in life. I mean, I, I can, I see myself continually growing year on year on year and not having a financial freedom figure where I stop. The way that I do things might be different or like I might become less business orientated and more philanthropic. Philanthropy? <laughs> might be more involved in philanthropy. Um. <laughs> Or family like that that uh, that might change like the way that I yeah have a family because right now it's currently just me and my mum and I see my girlfriend here and there. So as your as your life changes, your goals can shift as well, right? You can't just can't just go. I'm doing this, doing this, and doing this all the time, and then forget about the other things. Or you will forget about the other things, and then you'll suffer for it. You, you uh, yeah, you have to think about all aspects of your life, I suppose. What do you think is important to you now? Compared to 18-year-old Mark. So fitness uh, and sport was always a big, 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 big thing. And I would spend maybe four or five hours a day in that space. And now it's like an hour in the gym weightlifting and then 10 minutes in like uh, the jacuzzi or whatever, 10 minutes in the sauna, 10 minutes meditating in the steam room or uh, sauna or steam room. So like an hour and a half a day uh, for Fitness is in my necessity book now, but it used to be a lot more than that. And then on the weekends, it'd be like all weekend dedicated to sport. That's probably the the biggest change. What do you enjoy doing outside of outside of work? Uh, so golf, snowboarding, uh, and going to the gym. What else do I enjoy? Networking, <laughs> going out for food. I love good food. I probably eat out a lot more than most people do. Um, Which is expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I don't have any other high costs. Like my, my car isn't on finance or anything like that. I've got a £2,000 car. I don't sort of have a necessity to wear fancy clothes. I just wear bay property stuff everywhere. <laughs> um, so it's peaks and troughs, isn't it? It's where you spend your, what you focus on. So before we wrap up, I thought I'd just ask you, you know, what's what's the next five years got in store for you? Uh, uh, 
to dominate the Airbnb space in Morecambe would be a, a five-year goal. How are we going to do that? We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're going to keep networking with the people that we network with. We're going to work collaborative, collaboratively with the people that are already in this area. Um, using my local area knowledge, my build team, my lawyers, well, solicitors, um, and people like that. So it's who who is around me that can help me in all the areas that need to be to help that that goal become a reality. Uh, as the Eden Project sort of comes to Morecambe, we want to be. Uh, I want to be dominant by that time. There's a there's a saying that if you want to go, um, what is it? If you want to go far, then go alone, and if you want to go far and fast, then go together, or something like that, something along those lines. There's different connotations of it, and I don't really uh, buy into it. I think if you want to go anywhere. Go together. Different personalities, different skill sets, working together. Uh, otherwise, you're not gonna you're not gonna get anywhere because you haven't got anybody to influence you. Do you think that outside of work, you know, in personal life, you know, family, kids, stuff like that, is that on the cards? Don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Am I putting on you the spot? Am I putting you on the spot a bit? I don't know what tomorrow will bring. You know, this is my situation now. I'm a, a guy who is sort of creative. I dream up ideas all the time. I'm focused on two property deals that I've got on at the moment that are taking quite a lot of my mental capacity. I've got a girlfriend that we've been together for three months. How that's going to pan out in five years' time, I don't know. Um, hopefully it keeps going well and it, the, the relationship grows. But uh, I've probably got a bit of a negative uh, view on family and relationships. I think there's been more divorces around me than there has marriages that stay together. So uh, it's certainly something I'm wary of as I get more wealthy. Very, very rarely does a man get into a marriage and then divorce and become more wealthy at the end. I think when you have been through some dark periods like you have, um, something that's definitely um, common between people that have been through depression is that they say, I just take one day at a time and I don't look too far ahead. Um, and I know that's even true for me. I don't like to look too far ahead. I just like to, you know, if this week's gone well, then let me have another good week and then another good week and then another good week. Instead of, you know, planning too far ahead, I like to take things, you know, a little bit slower and and take it week by week. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So yeah, goal set for the year, goal set for your life. But goal set for the week, that's where I'm at. Like, goal set for the week, goal set for the day. Let's do these things. If we did them, great. If we didn't, put them on the list for tomorrow. If we don't do them tomorrow, by day four, we're asking somebody, can you help me with this? Because for whatever reason, I can't get my head into the game to achieve this task that I wanted to do. And a lot of the time for me, that's talking to somebody because I'm scared I'm going to get a negative answer back. So if somebody wants to connect with you and they want to reach out, where can they find you? How can they get in touch? Yeah, so on Facebook, Mark James Nichols, Bay Property is the company one. On Instagram, Bay Property and Mark James Nichols. Uh, and on LinkedIn, Mark James Nichols. The Bay Property Network is on Eventbrite. Just search Bay Property Network 
uh, on there, and that should bring up uh, all our networking events for the rest of the year. They are on the last Wednesday of the month. Um, I did that because when we set it up, I was still in the army and we had sports afternoons on a Wednesday, so it allowed me time to travel up. So that's why they're on the last Wednesday of the month. And uh, bayproperty.co.uk is my website for my Airbnbs if you're looking for somewhere to stay in Morecambe. Amazing, Mark. Well, thank you very much. I think it's been really valuable, especially for you to share some of your ups and highs and downs and lows and and really open up to everyone. So I really appreciate it. And and thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. We should uh, we should do this again sometime. I like this. This is pretty cathartic. Absolutely. A therapy session, isn't it? Yeah, man. <laughs>